Let us pray. Father, we pray for peace this season, and we may learn uh, the lessons that began in Bethlehem. And in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I think I just did something bad. I had you sit down, and you're going to stand right back up again. I spent my last half of my sabbatical at Episcopalian Church, and that's a aerobics class compared to what you're used to. So, uh... Yes, let's stand for the reading of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Have a seat. So I read this text, it got me thinking, this is really a story about fathers. I know Mary gets a starring role, but when I read it this uh, last year, I thought, this is fathers. There's a father, Caesar, Augustus, father of Rome, calls himself savior of the world because uh, he came to power by ending a civil war, killing everybody who had started that war and uniting Rome under one rule, a rule of peace. So uh, there's one father. He, ordered lot, he liked to order censuses to um, find out how many people were in this new United Empire, how to tax them, military conscription, and so forth. So one of the censuses he calls for has Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth, and his fiancée Mary dragging themselves from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Joseph, another father, soon to be. Now, what I want to know about this story was, why is Mary, a, a, a gal who's in a delicate delicate condition, traveling over land 90 miles. Was this, was this Joseph's doing? Is he one of these psycho husbands who you know, has to have his woman with him all the time and he can't give her a break? Uh, maybe this was Mary's idea. She just wanted to be with him when the big day came, first baby, no matter what. Maybe they both agreed on it. They're young, soon to be newlyweds and you know, they, just, they got love and they just want to be together no matter what. I don't know. I don't know why she's doing this, but this is not a situation that any parent wants to be in. It's safe to assume there are grumbling crowds headed toward Bethlehem. Nobody likes government bureaucracy. Nobody likes the census. It's bad enough when they come to your door, and this one you have to go to theirs. So everyone's dragging into Bethlehem. It's a little village, but it's one of those towns where you're born and then you try to leave it. So when everybody who's born there comes back, it gets filled up real fast. Village crams full of people, and then the baby comes. And this is where the story starts to get trashy. Suddenly they find that all the hostels are full. Now there's no, in the story, any cranky innkeeper we can blame this on. Um, the cartoons and the animation stories were nice, and there might have been one, but 
He's not in the text. Just as likely is that the middle of Bethlehem has a public hostel, two-story building, second floor. You can rent a little space to sleep on for the night in a big room with a bunch of people. And underneath is the animal room where you can store whatever animals you've brought with you. And, you know, they kind of make a natural furnace for the second floor. So they get to that public hostel, and it's full. So they're invited to go park it down in the animal room and have a baby. Now, I think a little money could have fixed this problem. Could have gotten boarding in someone else's house. Could have bought someone's spot on the floor. Hey, buddy, my, you know, look at her. So here's some money. You could just give us your spot. And they didn't have enough money, evidently, with them to pull that off. I would think there's something some connections could have fixed. I mean, wasn't Joseph born in this town? Doesn't he know anybody? Hey, you remember me? Well, look what I, no. No, he evidently doesn't, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and evidently he doesn't know the right person to get this pulled off. So once the baby comes, where do they lay the baby? In a feeding trough? Really? This is not the sort of thing that happens to people that have their act together. This is the sort of thing that happens to indigent street people, you know, having babies in cardboard boxes and dumpsters and that sort of thing. Now, I get it. Rome is bearing down on them, and they're an oppressed people, and Caesar forced this census on them, and there's nothing they could do, and we're supposed to feel sorry for them. But they traveled with a pregnant woman, and they did not secure lodging for her, even when she went into labor. And she's having a baby on the floor of a stable. They laid that baby in a trough that animals eat out of. Now, this is totally judgmental on my part, I freely admit, but this is a trashy, low-rent story. And I'd be ashamed if my family wound up like this. And that got me thinking about being ashamed as a dad that your family is wound up in a certain situation. And that got me thinking about Christmas several years ago uh, when my son was four. And all he wanted that Christmas was a Nintendo DS, you know, the handheld game version. And that was the new hot thing, and I knew that year we could not afford something like that. He asked for it so many times with such energy that I finally had to take him aside a few weeks before Christmas to say, Son, I, I don't uh, want you to get your hopes set on that. I, I can tell you, you are probably not going to be getting that for Christmas. It's painful to tell your kids they can't have something. I don't think it's wrong to tell your kids no and they can't have something. Um, to be honest about the means that your family has, if you can do it in a way that doesn't create a sense of fear and scarcity, but you can just convey that information in a matter-of-fact way. I don't think it's wrong, but it still hurts because you, you want some of your kids' hopes to come true at least some of the time. I walked away from that conversation with my son wondering, is this one of those big childhood moments he'll always remember? And as a dad, did I just blow it? And that got me thinking about Joseph. Joseph is a dad. I'm a dad. So I get Joseph. And I know with all my heart, he wanted more for his family than that. A stable in Bethlehem. He wanted to provide for his family. I just know that in my gut as a dad. He wanted a celebratory start to his son's life. He wanted Mary in the little 
uh, you know, wherever they lived with the aunts and the mom and the grandma and the village midwife. And he wanted to be out in the street with his brothers and his uncles and his dad and some lady to come rush out and say, it's a boy. And him to say, I have a son. And everybody goes, la, 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 whatever they do there. <laughs> he wanted that. He wanted to go back and forth from his house to his market for the next week and everyone to look out the window and go, now there's the new young dad in town, Joseph, and he's doing it right. Well, who's going to say that now? He drug a pregnant girl 90 miles. She's laying on the floor of an animal stall. She's laboring in the same place a goat might have labored that morning. She's crying. And she doesn't have sisters or mothers or any friends around her. And when the baby comes, he's not laid in a bed or on a cot or in a bassinet, but in a wooden box or a depression in a cave floor where straw is dumped for animals to eat. In this moment, Joseph must have known one thing. I'm a failure. This is one of those big moments. And I totally blew it. This got me thinking about another dad, a dad from history who I, I love to read and talk about, Casper Ten Boom. As far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest dads ever, and we hardly know anything about his parenting except what his sister or his uh, daughter wrote in some books. He was a Dutch watchmaker who lived in Holland in, in the early 1900s. Now, we know only this about his parenting, that every night before dinner could be put on the table, he would take down the family Bible, and someone would have to read an entire chapter every night before dinner. We know that he led a prayer group for Israel, and we know that he led a Bible study and a life skills group for the mentally handicapped people who lived in his village. We know about Caspar Tim Boom that when the Nazis took over his village, he sewed a yellow star on his coat, even though he was a Christian. And he told everyone in the town, we should all just sew these yellow stars on our coats, see? Then they can't tell us apart. So all this racism will die as quick as it began because everyone will have a yellow star. It won't make any difference. Nobody did it. They all thought he was a crazy old man, just Casper and all the Jews wearing a yellow star. We know that he built a hiding place on the top floor of his watchmaking shop where he hid 10 Jews. We know that he and his two daughters living with him got busted by the Nazis and hauled to a concentration camp. Now, I don't care whether you're a young dad with a baby or an 80-year-old dad with two 50-year-old daughters who live with you. When you get yourself hauled to a concentration camp, you stop and ask yourself, what have I done? I could not keep our family safe. This was a big moment, and I blew it. Some of you have big moments this year, and you're wondering right now if you've blown it. Uh, Christmas can be the most wonderful time of the year. It can also be horrible because everything that happens in the year comes to roost at Christmas time. If you just had a baby, then this is, woohoo, baby's first Christmas. But if you lost someone you loved earlier this year, then this is your first Christmas without them. And if you lost a job earlier this year, then you can see it on the size of Santa's Christmas list. And if your husband left you or your wife cheated on you, it just makes you sick to think about in a few weeks sitting around a Christmas tree, wondering, I wonder who'll be there. If you're rich this time of year, and you know everyone's thinking, oh, I bet they're living it up. I bet they don't have a care in the world this time of year. 
And that's not entirely true, is it? Like Joseph, we can all find ourselves on Christmas looking around, wondering what has happened. And if this is one of those big moments, and we just blew it. But right when one father, Joseph, is at the bottom of his game, there's another father who's at the top of his. Are we talking about Caesar Augustus, the father of Rome, who can make a decree and get everybody running all around? No. We're talking about God the Father. In the verse we read, uh, in verse uh, 4, it says, Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. Twice in one sentence it mentions the name David, somebody who by the time this was written had been dead for a thousand years. Why? Because 900 years before this night, God had promised someone would be on the throne of David forever. And 600 years before this night, a prophet had said that that promised king would come from Bethlehem. God is going to take Caesar Augustus' decree and bend it to accomplish his greatest miracle yet. Yes, Joseph dragged a pregnant girl 90 miles right into a prophesied city. They gave birth in an animal room to a prophesied king from the line of David. And they laid him in a feeding trough. And it's perfect. The Son of God shouldn't be laid anywhere else. Because the Caesar Augustus, with all his wealth and might, killed all his enemies and proclaimed himself Savior of the world. God has had enough of that kind of king. Now God is going to show us himself what a real king is. A real Savior is humble. A real Savior is peaceful. And a real Savior is laid in a manger. Right at the moment that Joseph is at the bottom of his game, God leans down and whispers to him, Joseph, thank you. Thank you for being part of the most beautiful picture of what a real Savior is and what a real Savior does. He comes to be with us. He comes to be with the poorest of us. He comes in the middle of the trashiest story you can imagine. That's where God is. When Joseph's failure as a husband and as a father seems to be complete, his reliance on God is at its highest. And his success as a father in that moment is at its highest. Because when we're at the bottom of our game, God is at the top of his Maybe that's why St. Francis in the 10th, uh, 10th or 11th century took what was probably a sad Mary doing the ugly cry and a terrified Joseph and he turned it into one of the most beautiful pictures we've ever seen. 
You know, St. Francis was one of the first people to take some actors and some actresses and put them in the middle of a village and have somebody dress up like an angel and some shepherds and some wise men and bring some live animals in and set this up in the middle of his village. People went crazy the first time he did it. People would just go out and stand in the streets and sing and pray and look at it. The first time they had seen something like that. Is that picture St. Francis created historically or even biblically accurate? Did all those people show up on the same night? No. Is it a spiritually accurate picture? Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus. And shepherds, less than blue-collar workers, come to be the ones who will spread the good news. And wise men from the opposite side of their known world coming to worship him. And angels proclaiming his birth. And even the animals of creation gathered around him saying, Finally, the king of the universe has come to save this world. Is that a spiritually accurate picture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Christmas is a lot of things. It's also the night when one man, Joseph, who was probably crying, I failed, I failed, I failed, finds himself picked up by God and dusted off and told, Peace, my son. Peace. You've just been part of the central miracle of human history. Wipe off your face, Joseph. They're going to paint pictures of you. I hope you wore something nice, Joseph, because children are going to dress up like you for a thousand years. Joseph, they're going to make little figurines of you and put them on every fireplace mantle in the world. A poor artist in Haiti, an island on the other side of the world, took the lid off an oil drum, some hammer and some tin snips, and he made this of this night we're talking about, and there's Joseph. Everybody knows this guy. He's just a carpenter from the first century. Making a mistake you or I would never make. How did he get where he is? Uh, This is an audience participation moment. This is a little trivia contest, and, and you all can just shout out if you know the answer. So Joseph, this carpenter in the first century who, who thinks he's blowing it. Who, what is the name of this son, his firstborn son? Jesus. Jesus. I bet some of you even know one of his brother's names, a brother of Jesus. James. James. Some of you even know two of his sons. Where was this first son born? Bethlehem, now how'd you hear about this little insignificant village? Where was Joseph's son when he died? What city? Jerusalem. Who was Joseph's wife? Mary. You know, you know this guy's whole family. Now, are there any hospitals named after Joseph? Are there any schools? Are there any churches? I mean, surely just in his hometown, right? Not all over the world. How many of you have a little statue of Joseph or a picture of him in your home right now? Show of hands. You all have this guy. Let's take that other father, the one who had it all together, had his act together. Caesar Augustus, father of Rome. How many of you can name Caesar Augustus' firstborn son? Crickets. How many of you can name Augustus' wife? 
How many of you know what city he was born in? Rome. Was that a guess or did you know? It was a guess. Then did you know what city he died in? Are there any hospitals named after Augustus? How many of you have a little picture of Caesar Augustus on your fireplace mantle right now? <laughs> Someone in first service yelled out, he's got a salad dressing. <laughs> and a pizza joint. <laughs> so what did all this wealth and power get him? Pizza, pizza. When we are at the bottom of our game, God is at the top of his. When the world beats us down, God lifts us up, dusts us off, and says, peace, my son, peace. That got me thinking about Casper Tim Boom, that old dad, that watchmaker from Harlem, got thrown into a concentration camp. When one of the guard saw him coming into the check-in. He calls him over. He says, old man, come over here. He says, I'm not going to put an old man in prison. Now, you just promised me you're not going to cause any more problems, and you can go home. Casper, through this door is a concentration camp. Through this door is home. Now, just tell us you're not going to cause us any more problems, and you can go home. And Casper looked at the guard and said, if anyone else comes to my door asking for help, I will help him. And the guard said, get back in line. Casper went through this door, and 10 days later, he was dead. Now, one of his daughters survived that concentration camp, and she went on to write a series of books about, of all things, forgiving your enemies. And she traveled the world and led uh, millions of people to Christ and to forgiveness of enemies on every continent on earth. And in every book she wrote, it was my father who taught me these things. Who are we celebrating today? The watchmaker or the prison guard? Who made the world better? Who made the world worse? Now who's a failure? You haven't blown it. You can turn to God. And you can see him lifting you up and dusting you off and saying, Peace, my son. I'm doing the central miracle of your life right now. Whenever I want to know anything about what it takes to be a dad, I ask my friend Ken. And he had a story that I thought went well with what we're talking about this morning. So I asked him if he'd come share it, and he said yes. So uh, let's welcome my friend Ken. <laughs> my name's Ken McCrary, and this is my story. I was an elementary school principal for nine years in an urban school district. Actually, I really liked my job. My staff was great, and together we accomplished a lot in a very tough setting. Unfortunately, the district was getting harder and harder to work in. The school board was a shambles, and it was becoming an uphill battle to get the job done. 
The stress was showing on me. I was often exhausted. I was growing more and more frustrated with the changes in my district. And when the opportunity came to apply for an administrative position in a smaller district and a much smaller school, I jumped at it. Initially, the new job proved way easier. But as time went on, I began to realize that there were a lot of unforeseen obstacles that I had not counted on. For starters, I had not been my supervisor's choice to hire. But others on the team that interviewed me had overruled her. That's not a good way to start. There were uh, also a lot of district policies that uh, I just couldn't agree with, politics that I just couldn't agree with. And as a result, I often failed to see eye to eye with the administrators that I worked with. I had no way of knowing that I had just signed on to a ridiculously stressful uphill battle that was going to take three years of my life. In hindsight, I should have gone to my wife, Christina, after the first few months and told her that I was afraid that this job was just not going to work out. I hinted at it, but I didn't want her or my girls to know how bad it was. I was the dad, and I was the husband, and I was supposed to be the rock, the one that could handle everything. So my pride and my stubbornness to succeed would not allow me to give up or to go to my wife with the full story. And I didn't want to appear weak, and I didn't want her to worry about me, because after all, I had taken what to all appearances should have been an exponentially easier job. But for me, every day was becoming another experience in failure. And I began to think that for some reason, I no longer had what it took to be a successful principal. And I could not see any light at the end of the tunnel because every single day was worse than the day before. Finally, in the spring of my third year, my supervisor told me that I was not going to be renewed as the building administrator. I had the option to apply to another district for, the administrative, for another administrative position, or I could return to the classroom in my current district. I had never been so relieved to be demoted in my entire life. It was like an anvil had been lifted off my shoulders. That meeting lasted about 45 minutes. And during that time, I was given an extensive list of my inadequacies as a leader, as an educator, and a team member. But you know, I can barely remember that conversation. Okay, partially it's because I'm a little ADD and my mind tends to wander around shiny things. <sighs> but mostly, all I could think about while she was droning on was how overjoyed I was that I wasn't going to be a principal anymore. For the last three years, I had been fighting to keep my head above water, and I felt that I had been thrown a giant life preserver. My only concern was, how do I go home and tell my wife and my family that our sole income is just about to take a $20,000 pay cut? Hey, guess what, honey? My wife listened as I explained to her the options that had been placed before me. She never hesitated. Her answer was, good. You always loved 
being a teacher way more than being a principal anyways. So go back to the classroom. We'll make the money thing work out. The interesting thing is that when we told our daughters the news, the only thing they cared about was whether or not I was going to be home more. My eight-year-old wanted to know if I was going to start eating dinner with them more often. And it was then that I realized that I had been so busy trying to survive in my workplace that I hadn't even noticed the effect that it was having on my family. I was home late on an average of three, to five, three out of the five days a week. And when I was home, I was tired, I was stressed, and I was unhappy. I would fall in a chair if I sat down for more than 10 minutes at a time. I'd fall asleep. And on Sundays around 5 o'clock, my headaches would start and my stomach would start to hurt. But I still thought that by all appearances, I was managing to spin the plates on my own without anybody noticing, but I'd been wrong. So the following school year, I began my new job as a teacher. I had not been in front of a classroom in 12 years. It was like being a rookie teacher all over again. I was always fighting to stay caught up. I struggled to appear like I at least knew what I was doing. I, it, it was wicked hard. And I loved every minute of it. Within the first three months, each of my daughters asked me to promise them that I would never go back to being a principal again as long as I lived. Tate, my youngest daughter, said in the car, you know, you're a lot more fun again. My daughter, Sage, broke my heart. She told me she was happy that I'd started to laugh again because over the last year, I hardly ever laughed anymore. So here I am, five years later, I still am in a classroom teaching. I love my job. I look forward to going to work. I smile, I even laugh. Just don't tell my classroom that. <laughs> My working future, which seemed so desolate a few years ago, couldn't be brighter if it was a supernova. Christina and I are a team again because I'm better at swallowing my pride and letting her know what is going on when I'm starting to feel overwhelmed by things like common core testing or heavier caseloads in the classroom. As a result of my job change, she was able to go to nursing school. She graduated in May and is now starting her career as a nurse. I feel like I am once again the husband and the father that I should be, at least most of the time. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still have my moments. And after all, life is just one giant learning experience. I was once told that God answers our prayers by usually saying yes, no, or not right now. In my instance, his answer was, hey, guess what? You're fired. <laughs> and you're welcome. My name is Ken McCrary, and this is my story. Yes, you lost someone you love this year. And yes, you lost a job and your spouse. And your life is not as wonderful as everybody who looks at you thinks that it is. You are learning so much from this time. This will become the turning point of your life if you let it. 
This is not your defining moment. Your defining moment is what God has in store for you. And Advent is a season for us to stop and be quiet and open our eyes and see him dusting us off and saying, peace, peace. Some of you need to do something radically different. Your problem is you've been flirting with God a foot in and a foot out and a foot in and a foot out for years. You've got to do something different. It's not led anywhere good. You've got to do something different. Like what? Just come here and sit in that seat you're sitting in for the next six weeks all in a row. Don't miss any of them. And when you sing those songs, open your mouth and sing them. It will do your heart a good I can't explain to sing none but thee. And whatever you hear coming from this word, for the next six weeks, just do it. Every sermon has like two or three takeaways. You just gather them up and do them. What kind of difference is that going to make? You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. You've got to do something different. It doesn't have to make sense. Do something that doesn't make sense. What's made sense to you to this point has landed you where you are. Do something weird. You can do anything for six weeks. Oh, I've already planned to be out of town some of that. Well, we put it up all on the internet. You can get on the podcast and hear it just like if you were here. Six weeks, all in a row. And respond. You know who that is in that manger? That's God come to be with you. Even knowing everything that was going to happen and all the ways you'd respond to it, he came to be with you anyway. That Christmas, my son asked for a Nintendo DS. The best I could do was a used Game Boy. Two technologies earlier. I bought a used Game Boy off somebody in the church lobby for $30 like we were doing a drug deal. (laughs) It was as close as I could get. And on Christmas morning, when my son opened it, His eyes got huge. He jumped over that box and he hugged me so tight and he said, You got it for me. You got me a DS. (laughs) At four years old, you see, he didn't know one brand of a game from another. He knows now. But at four years old, every game you held in your hand was a DS. And as he hugged me so tight, I could hardly breathe. I heard the Lord whisper to me, Lighten up. This is not as hard as you're making it. Peace, my son. Peace. This second candle we light is the candle of peace. Advent is a holy season of four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve, and this is the second, the Sunday of peace. And this time of year, we invite everyone in the church to celebrate this in your home on the Sunday evening or the first evening you can. Invite people over. Have the neighbors over. Have some other friends from church over. Have your family over. And uh, just do three things for, for an hour on Sunday. Set a mood in your home. Turn down the lights. Turn on some Christmas music. Uh, Read some words about Jesus. Um, Light some candles. A candle for hope. A candle for peace. And then have a special treat. Celebrate. Enjoy something you only enjoy this time of year. 
Let us stand together and we'll do our benediction from the Celtic Book of Common Prayer. Good. I'll do the call and you'll all do the response. Watch and pray. Those who are longing await his appearing. Watch, wait, listen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And go in peace.